Welcome to the LIBF Financial Education Team Podcast. In each episode, we will discuss the key topics that impact on financial education, and whenever possible, include guests so we can get their thoughts and ideas too. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Andrew Craig, welcome to the Financial Education Team Podcast. Great to have you on. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very good to be on. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, it is 100% all our pleasure. We're really keen to make this podcast work, and that's only going to be based on the quality of the guests we get on and, the, and their experience and what they do. And I've been excited about having you on this episode. I know we've spoken a few times over the last couple of weeks, but I know the content we're going to cover today around your background and some of the exciting things you've got moving forward and have already done is going to be great for me personally, but more importantly for all the listeners who are tuning in. So thanks for giving up your time. I also know how busy you are, so I really am well, grateful. Well, I hope, I hope I can live up to the billing. That's a pretty, <laughs> you know, if you want to have a top quality uh, um, guest on I, I hope that ends up being the case or I'll, I'll do Built you up now yeah exactly <laughs> no pressure it's all nonsense for half an hour but we'll, see how we <laughs> well on that note then I think the first thing to see if it's okay if you don't mind just tell us a bit about kind of your career your background and what it is you currently do sure so uh, I always joke whenever I'm asked that because this is that's that's invariably the first question you get asked in a podcast you know it's the old, all of us us Brits it's the question that British people really hate <laughs> so <laughs> tell us about yourself but I guess um in terms of what's relevant to this discussion, you know, I started in, in a convention, I did economics at university, and then I got a job in the city in the late 90s with what was then Swiss Bank, SBC Warburg. And so since then, I've basically done 22 years in financial services of one kind or another with Swiss Bank for a few years, um, a Swedish investment bank, a French investment bank, who am I missing out? I'm missing out one of the, one of the uh, a, a UK a small UK bank. And then for the last six and a half years, I was a partner at a little boutique investment bank in London um, called WG Partners that specialised in biotechnology. But but which is all a bit of a red herring because what what then happened is that um, in 2010 I was living in New York um, working for the French investment bank I just mentioned, and basically uh, sort of woke up one morning and I was like not happy you know wrong city wrong wrong job what, what am I doing here homesick whatever. And just thought I needed to make a change. And, and I ended up taking actually two years out of conventional employment. And I, and I had this idea to start a website. And I look back now, it's funny how naive I was, right? But I, was, I had this idea to start a website, which ended up being called plainenglishfinance.com. And it was basically, but it was sort of an angry young man, you know, realisation that financial literacy is really poor. And I found it really frustrating. And everybody only does cash or or, or cash and property or... and. and you know, people don't make use of financial products. People don't understand the basics of people. People's eyes glaze over when you start talking about equities or bonds or come on, you know. And I, and I thought actually, you know, I, I kind of knew from first-hand experience, having worked in that world for however long it was by then, fifteen years or whatever, that, or a little bit less than that. But that that's a massive shame, and that that's a massive shame for individuals at the individual level for people because it makes it so much harder to become wealthy, and that's why so many people have such a difficult relationship with money and wealth. Um, and it needn't be that hard, right? Uh, and, but it's also b- more broadly because when you aggregate millions of people in that position, it's a massive shame for sort of society, you know, for, for mankind without wanting to uh, just put it in a slightly over the top way. So I had this idea to start a website called Plain English Finance. And I was basically just going to put loads of stuff up on the website that said, you know, what is a bond? What is a share? Why is this stuff important? How can it, 
you know, it, get rich slow. How can you almost guarantee that you can become a millionaire? Like it, it was ridiculous that sounds, and we'll come on to that. If you start young enough and you know what you're doing with the, with stock market investments, that that is a very very real possibility, even for people on an average wage, right? Um, which is a big part of our message. And so, and I, and I guess what then happened through a series of kind of happy accidents, through through luck rather than judgment, as I often say, is that. Um, my, my, rather, my rather rubbish website that had like tons and tons of content on it that I'd written and just posted up with no real idea of what I was doing kind of morphed into a book which which was originally called Own the World and is now called How to Own the World and, and what and basically what then happened was the book you know randomly within a few weeks or months or whatever there were lots and lots of five-star reviews and we were kind of looking at sales reports from Amazon going hang on like you know that's good um and that, that was very exciting and it's now so it's now in its third edition it's called How to Own the World now because I discovered after I published my self-published one um, that there was another book out there called Own the World. So that was obviously. <laughs> I was going to ask first, that. <laughs> well, the first one was self-published, and I did a Google, but I didn't do a proper search. You know, yeah. all over the world, there was a book in America. So um, I, t- I actually had to take legal advice from a very expensive lawyer in Chicago about, about that. But anyway, that's why the second and third editions are called How to Own the World. And so what do I do now? Well, I, I actually quit my day job only a couple of months ago. Um, because basically um, I I really want to go full time on all of this. And so well, well, plainenglishfinance.com or plainenglishfinance.co.uk is, is my business. Um, we, I actually published a second book. So the first book is called How to Own the World. The second book we published last year is called Live on Less, Invest the Rest, which is kind of a sort of almost like a workbook. It's almost like a more of a, the first book's more the theory and the second book's the practice of like, you know, the nuts and bolts of which investment accounts and pensions and ISAs and all that sort of good stuff. And then um, very happily again, through luck rather than judgment, we um, three and a half years ago, well, it was a, long, a lot longer ago than three and a half years ago to how long it's time, time it took to get it sorted. But we managed to launch our own investment fund um, with two professors um, at the Cass Business School in London or the, the City of London Business School, I think it's now called. But um, they're pretty high profile horribly smart guys um, that I'm incredibly honoured to work with Um, and it's a bit of a long story as to how we got to know each other but we did and I'm you know very honoured to work with them on a strategy whereby we basically have an investment fund that we think is a very defensive accessible sensible way of investing money in your pension or your ISA or whatever and it's like any investment fund it's horses for courses it only suits people who want the the, what the job it just sort of does what it says on the tin right and people who want that job done we're very proud of it it's still and this is part of why I just quit my J job candidly because it's uh, it depends on who your audience is and who's listening but it's got about 11 and a half million quid in it at the moment which sounds to a lot of people sounds like a big number but actually in the fund management industry that is a tiny number in your subscale and so my job the other thing to say about that is basically until you've had a fund up in lights for th- well a fund always has a chicken and egg problem right which is that nobody wants to invest in a fund until they, it's got a track record and and you can't get a track record until somebody's invested in the fund because you basically need 10 million quid to sort of make it wash its face economically so you're not hemorrhaging cash every month so and happily we got to 10 million quid right out the gate three and a half years ago but because of the success of my book and because of the size of our audience it's then you're then a lot of people have the same experience in fund management which is then you can't really start getting lots of money into a fund until you've done more than three years because people want to see a three-year track record. And actually, a lot of the big investors in, in the UK and elsewhere in the world want to see a five-year or even a seven-year track record, which is part of why I, I stayed at my day job, because 
the commercial rubber can only really hit the road now that it's been trading for more than three years. And, you know, the last years it, it, it's, it's done a lot better than, than the first couple of years because of coronavirus and all sorts of other stuff. Anyway, very long winded answer, but basically we've got a book, we've got an online community, which is hosted in Facebook just because the functionality that that provides us with, you know, chat and sharing content and stuff. We've got an email list, which has got more than 12,000 people on it now where I send out, you know, my ramblings, which hopefully people find interesting. Uh, we're about to relaunch our YouTube channel and we've got this investment fund, you know, which is why I've quit the, full, quit the day job to go full time. I'm pushing all of these things ahead. And, and the last thing I'd say is that we do, we kind of sort of cheesy Californian thing to say, but we, ha we have a stated mission, we have like a mission statement for our company. And that is very simply to improve the financial affairs of as many people as possible. And we, we you know, I mean that actually the company's existed for 10 years. So, um, you know, there's, that's, that's nearly t 10 years of kind of not, it was a lot more than a hobby. Let's be clear, right. We raised money and stuff, but you know, I was running it alongside a full-time job and you know, that, that's an awful lot of work kind of done gratis, you know, really, I mean, a lot of, I've never paid myself anything yet for this, from this business. Right. And so I guess I'm just saying that to credit the fact that we have a real sense of mission. Um, and we've done, you know, I've been willing to work on it for 10 years because of the sense of mission. Um, and of course, I'll be very happy if we end up with a billion pounds under management in our fund and it, um, it's more than a sense of mission. But anyway, so there you go. Goodness me. Sorry, that was like well, like a 10 minute answer to your question about what do you do? But that, that's uh, hopefully relatively comprehensive. It's the perfect answer because it totally explains why we're excited about having you on the podcast and, and why we can chat about some of this stuff, because you're the right man to, to chat through these things. It's a, it's a wonderful history. And but what resonates from what you told me and also just speaking to you the last couple of times is mm. you seem to have a bit of a passion just not for doing the job, but also for explaining what it's about. So whether it's the fund or the book or the website, you just seem to have this thing where doing it's not enough for you. You want to share the knowledge and help people understand it, too. And I'm curious to know, because that's that's quite unique. I mean, I'm sure there's some really great guys that have done, had similar backgrounds you've got work wise, but don't mm. have that drive about them. Do you, does that come from a place you're well, aware of? My wife, my wife would probably say it's just I'm an angry young man, you know, or I was more <laughs> than an angry young man probably before I met her. But um, there are so many reasons for that. And there, I mean, basically, I feel very, very passionate. Like, like I said, you know, at the top of this call, I see, I articulate financial literacy, the possession of real financial literacy amongst the general population as, as what I describe as a silver bullet for society. Because it, th this stuff is not that common. The other thing I often say is becoming good at finance, like effectively financially literate, so you can actually do something that, ch that changes your life, and it will change your life, right, truly, is no harder than learning how to drive a car. And it's an insane sort of societal blind spot all over the world that everyone thinks it's normal to learn how to drive a car. It's like, oh, yeah, drive a car. You know, if you... If you showed a car to somebody in 1800 and, and they watched it go 100 miles an hour around a racetrack and then said, right, in you get and try, they would absolutely freak out and think, you know, that's the most frightening thing ever. We're all completely inured to it. And I guess the analogy there is most people think about the stock market or bond market or, or you know, they think about financial stuff as being super complicated and for rich people. And, and I, that is a massive tragedy because it's a tragedy for millions of people who, do, who it, with relatively little information, and as I say, I always go back to this car example, like it, it, less time than it took them how to learn to effectively drive a car around the place, right? If they spent the same number of hours at the same sort of age, like in their teens, let's say, learning about the nuts and bolts of effective finance, that is going to make a massive difference to their life, right? And, and as I said earlier, 
it's so much more than that it's gonna because because then you know if you have x million people who do that right what that means is you have x million people who are much better at supporting themselves and their their dependents and their loved ones you also have x billion or even well trillions probably exaggeration but you know if you adopt financial history all over the world you have so much more capital available i mean i've just spent six and a half years trying to raise money for biotech companies little biotech companies well and by little i mean anywhere from sort of 20 million quid value up to maybe a billion quid value which in the stock market world is quite little and these are brilliant companies that could cure cancer I mean, one of them is actually one of the manufacturers of the astrazeneca vaccine right now for example I mean, if that business has gone from being worth 30 million quid to being worth over a billion quid in seven years or whatever it's been and it's it's been an it's a night and day slog trying to get people to invest in companies like this, right? Which is fine. They are risky. It's a bit like investing in the movie industry or in a mining company or in an oil exploration company. It's risky. But my point is, if more people were truly financially literate and more people engaged with equities, with shares, right? Far more people. What that means is there will, all, all other things being, be more risk capital available for us to solve problems. Better, better media, better healthcare, better better technology companies better whatever and it's it's a particular problem in britain and and so you know and another thing i uh, as evidence that there are a couple of things to say so in the book i use this example i know you were going to ask me about it but i'll print it uh, you know if somebody can put five thousand quid in an investment account the day a child is born you know a, a rich a grandparent or a great aunt or a five grand the day a child is born and make no further investment whatsoever if that five grand can achieve a 10% annualized return, and look, bear with me for a sec, because that sounds nuts with interest rates at half a percent or whatever, and I get that. But just to pack out, unpack the mass, on their 55th birthday, they'll have 945 grand, right? Five grand, 5,500, 6,150, on and on, 55 years later, the first day they can legally retire, they'll have 945 grand uh, with no more investment than five grand. Now, 10% sounds nuts for people who are like, well, that's just nonsense. I walk into Lloyd's or Santander or Barclays, I'm going to get half a percent or whatever. And I cash ices, you know, pay less than inflation. So you destroy real wealth. But the S&P 500, the US stock market, has annualized 9% returns going back to 1872. Actually, I think that that's slightly out of date. I think it's higher than that now, given it's at 4,200 or whatever it is today. So look, not everyone can achieve, you know, 9%. It, it put it, there's volatility along the way, and we can perhaps come to that. But this, the basic point is that you, you can certainly do an awful lot better than 1%, and you might not do 10%. But, but, you know, there is a chance that if you engage with this stuff, you can actually aspire to make really meaningful returns of your money, especially if you do it over, over many years. And so the other point I wanted to make is, because this is really important, this comes back to your question about, so why am I on this crusade? Well, so I've just told you that the, the American stock market has basically annualized 9% returns going back to 1872. The average investor in America has made 5% returns. Okay, and that's basically, it's all to do with fear and greed and psychology and impatience and people wanting to try and get rich fast instead of get rich slow. Because what that does is actually, and I often talk about ignoring the news, like one of the most important things to do in investment is ignore the news. You shouldn't care about Trump or Brexit or coronavirus or anything. You should learn about how to invest for the long term. Totally close your eyes, cover your ears and never watch the BBC and never watch all this bleating nonsense because just for your investments. Right. Because it, there's a massive negative correlation between people who think. People who think they want to get into investment, like, oh, I'm going to be really plugged in and read websites about finance, that that's going to improve your percentage returns. 
have got it 180 degrees the wrong way around. It will almost certainly destroy, retard your percentage returns. So the market's done 9%. The average investor's done 5% because of this, right? Because they panic and go, oh, God, Trump's won the election. I'm going to dump all my mutual funds, right? But then it's far, far worse than that, right? Because in Britain, only 8% of people are investors. So the, the, so the, so the market's doing 9%. In 8% of people who actually know what an ISA is or a stocks and share, you know, they know what the stock market is and they wake up on a Sunday morning and think, I might just read Money Week magazine and figure out what I'm going to do with my money, you know, set up regular direct debits into an ISA, into a stocks and shares ISA, actually know what a fund is, et cetera, et cetera. That's only 8% of the population broadly, right? So 92% of the population are making 1%, okay? And they're making what at the moment because what they're doing is they're in cash. They're in cash ISAs, they're in cash. So, and that is a massive tragedy for all the reasons I know, because it doesn't need to be that way, right? It could very easily be that a far higher percentage of the world, and by the way, although this is probably quite hard to credit academically, and I could be shot down in flames by a serious econ economist, but it feels to me intuitively that the more, the bigger, the, the, the more people are putting money into equities and knowing about shares, potentially the percentage return should go up, right? Because there's more money chasing the, all those quality companies. Yep. That's probably a might, that's probably not correct. But anyway, but, but, but it will it certainly sounds have, like it should be. <laughs> yeah, well, quite, but it, but it probably have, it certainly would have a positive impact on really important areas of the economy. Uh, I mean, and I know that, as I say, firsthand, because little British companies coming out of Oxford or Cambridge or, or Bath or Leeds or, you know, lots of universities mm -hmm. where there are, if you like boffins, research scientists who think they might have a cure for cancer or for, you know, for whatever, for, for one of the cancers or an amazing technological innovation that could change diagnostics for cancer or whatever, find it incredibly hard to raise money. Because, and, and a big part of the reason for that is because too few people, everybody's sitting in cash ices or property is the other one, of course, because, you know, again, everybody feels really comfortable gearing themselves up to the eyeballs taking on a massive mortgage that's a huge multiple of their annual income or, or their combined annual income as a married couple right and they've done all that work and they've read all about you know they've read which magazine and they've shopped for mortgages and they've took nobody does that work i mean frankly everybody does that work if they're deciding on which domino's pizza to buy for the game on a saturday night right they do more on that and they certainly do more on a mortgage and they certainly do more on buying a car than they do on all the other on investment at all like all the other potential investments they can make so yeah so again a long wordy answer but why i'm, I'm passionate about it because it's it's nothing less than life-changing for individuals and society changing if enough individuals do it that's why i'm passionate about it and that again a great answer and it, it does come shining through when you want to speak to you and obviously i'm sure people can hear that now the way you're talking about that and it's a wonderful thing so we need people like you the understanding that share some of these things to give us the confidence to actually look a bit closer at, the, at this stuff and see what it can do for us individually well i have a question for you now which may be the hardest question i'm going to ask you i don't know it might not be but it sounds like it, it could be and it's back to your point about you you know one of your objectives on the website you mentioned it is to improve the financial affairs of as many people as possible which is wonderful there's obviously an issue with understanding of finance we recognize that you said particularly in Britain as well. So I just I just wonder, why is there an issue then? Why have we got this problem with it? If we look at the, how we might solve some of these things, where does the problem come from? Why does it exist? And particularly, why does it exist in Britain? There are, I mean, there are, again, there are tons of answers to that question. I think one of the first ones is that I read a brilliant book recently by a guy called Morgan Housel called The Psychology of Money. Um, annoyingly, he sells 
nearly four. I think he sold four hundred thousand copies of that book, so he's blowing me out of the water. But um, <laughs> I'll t- I'm, I've sold far more copies of my book than I ever dreamed I possibly would, so so I'll take that. But he's also American, and his book works. My book's mainly for the British market, and the American market's so much bigger. So, but the the reason I mention that is he he talks about. Um, there's a, I mean, that is a, by the way, it's a fantastic book that everybody should read because it, it really helps some of this stuff. But he talks about the fact that actually most financial products are only a few decades old. You know, before, and, and I talk about that in my book, I talk about the fact that because of financial innovation, you know, the mere fact that it is possible to invest in stuff and then aspire to get to a point in your life, which we call retirement at the moment, and conventionally, you know, is a pension and people at the age of 60 or whatever can stop and live on their capital, not on their labour. The mere fact that that's even possible, that there is, a, if you like, a, tech, a human technology that makes that possible is remarkable and relatively new. The, the sort of human societies transitioned massively, obviously, in the last century plus from, you know, feudal to kind of agrarian, basically Downton Abbey, you know, the rich people had everything and, and there was no middle class and you're either sort of an aristocrat or grindingly poor and had a life expectancy of 20. But it's only, re- you know, that has only changed really, really quite recently. I mean, in the last three generations, I mean, my great grandparents were living in a world that was much more like that than we are. And like like any new innovation, it takes quite a long time for things to percolate out into the entire population. You know, the early adopters are, are people like Warren Buffett or people launching hedge funds in the 60s when they first figured out the technology how to do that, which was a very, very small percentage of people in places like Manhattan, New York and London and you know, whatever else. But, but like anything else, I mean, one of the great and I suppose, if you like, we're surfing this this tide. I mean, God, that's a that's a, another Californian cheesy uh, thing to say. <laughs> but you know, what? Why is the time come for me to try and launch this business? Because actually, you know, social media and information can get disseminated far more effectively nowadays than ever in history. The problem with that at the moment is the bad information has just as good a chance at. Uh, being disseminated as good information yeah. and you know if people haven't got the educational chops or background to differentiate between the two and actually and they, i mean we can probably come on to this but I, this is why i rail against the crypto um i mean I, let's be clear i'm not just an unrepentant bear on crypto and blockchain but i just think that there's a very very big disconnect there because one of the problems with finance and it goes back to that book i mentioned the psychology of money right is the most important factor in your success is you and your psychology and one of the and psycho, psychological biases and imperfections in the way our brains work make us naturally bad investors for a whole re- bunch of reasons we can unpack that you have to be aware of and so and one of those is is basically um well it's you know the old thing about fear and greed but if you tell somebody i can make you 100 percent a year and then i tell somebody i can make you six and a half or seven percent a year and I'm competing with the person saying they can make you 100% a year commercially, even if people at the back of their mind know that the 100% a year person is lying or is mistaken. The nature of human cognition psychology is such that that person is far more likely to get the oxygen of their attention than I am, even though I'm not lying, right? So, and, and that's been compounded in the last few years in crypto, particularly because regulators all over the world have totally failed to regulate that. So, I'm regulated by the FCA, which means there is really, really aggressive rules about the exams I need to pass, the record keeping I need to do, the things I'm allowed to say and I'm not allowed to say about shares. Or I, I can't stand up and go, oh, I can make you 30% a year. Look at me, I'm brilliant. Right? I, I, I could go to prison if I did stuff like that. Right? Somebody in the crypto world has none of those 
limitations. So, so in a world where, I guess the point, I guess I'm going past the question you asked, but what, where I'm going is a bit of a tragedy of the last few years is that if you like, there's been a leapfrogging, particularly amongst the, amongst the young, where they've gone straight from never thinking about these things in like the 70s or 60s, 70s, 80s, oh, that's something for rich people. And they've gone blazing past the bit in the middle of like, what is the share, what are shares, and what is the, the, tech, the, the financial services technology that served us incredibly well for 200 years. And I would argue it's been the fundamental building block of the massive uplift in our wealth as a, as a, as a species, right? I mean, it, Niall Ferguson, who's a Harvard economic historian, brilliant, brilliant guy, has written loads of books, talks about how financial markets are, if you like, the sort of one of the killer apps of modernity. And without them, it, it's because of them that we have iPhones and airplanes and, you know, and that's, that's exactly, and, and much better healthcare and life expectancy has gone from 35 to 85 all over. I mean, that's absolutely remarkable. That's happened in the last hundred years. And financial, you know, the combination of democracy and financial markets has been why that's happened. But then, you know, and, and the, the benefits of that have, always, of course, not been evenly distributed. But I would argue that's a lot less to do with politics and nasty rich people, and a lot more to do with ignorance. You know, because and actually, whilst I'm on the subject, I'll just say it, if I may, which is people get causality and correlation the wrong way around when they think about financial markets as being for the rich people. right? Or, oh, yeah, so the stock market, that's not something for me. That's something for rich people. So it's like only rich people care about and learn about the stock market and I shouldn't. That, no, people are rich because they've learned about the stock market. And that's never been truer than it is today because basically, you know, 50 years ago, or in 1987 when the Sunday Times uh, rich list was first published, right, the thousand richest people in Britain or whatever it was, like two thirds of the people in that list had inherited their money from mummy and daddy, right? Last year, it was like 84% or 9%, I think it might even be 9%, I have to go and check my numbers, but a very, very significant percentage of people in there had, were self-made. Like they launched businesses, they understood about stock markets, they run hedge funds, right? Now, of course, it's a lot easier to be self-made if mummy and daddy, you know, Stelios Haji Yanu, who started EasyJet, it, I think his parents lent him money to buy his first 737, right? But, but there are still a lot, you know, the richest guy in the UK, Jim Ratcliffe, or often the richest guy, came from a Glaswegian council estate, right? The social mobility has got much more. But, but I think, you know, the, the broad point here is that people have been financially illiterate because nobody ever, ever nobody bought, not enough people bother to just think about finance. It's just not, it's like a massive blind spot. We teach all these skills at school. I mean, and I guess this is a big part of why we're having this conversation. And, what, and we don't teach these very basic lessons about, something that's been around for 200 years and has been utterly transformational for, for humanity. And, you know, it goes back to my, I'm rambling now, but it goes back to my driving analogy, right? I mean, everybody learns how to drive or whatever very high percentage of, of sort of adults or learn how to drive. Nobody learns what a share is. And, and then the other thing is, the problem with that is that then some of the people who haven't learned what a share is start investing in shares, which is another reason why well, that's a bit like driving a car before you've passed your driving test or had a driving lesson, you're a lot more likely to crash, right? Um, so anyway, but yeah, that was a very another very long and rambling answer to your question. But well, it's a great answer to, to the why we've got some of these issues, and you touched on some really like resonant points for us. And you know, you, you know what we do at LIBF, we work closely with trying to provide quality qualifications where young people, particularly those at secondary school and college, can learn yeah. a bit about money. 
and, and it's got two aspects really. One of that is around the personal finance. So you understand and confidence to talk about things like mortgages and, you know, interests and student loans, these kind of things, and the terminology and the language that comes with that. But second of all, also to plant some seeds potentially around careers and, you know, how you might use this knowledge to move forward. And that's yeah. what we kind of do. And, and, I, and I know that, you know, I, th- I think we come at this maybe slightly different ways, but with the same objective. And that's just trying to help more people kind of get a better grasp of this world and make it better for them. So, I'd like to talk about your book, if that's okay, because your book's sure. fantastic. And it, you know, and, it, and I think, again, it's one of these tools, I guess, that's going to hopefully, or, or already has, helped people in just understanding about the world of money and how they can have an impact and, you know, and maybe just dissipate some of these fears and, and terminology that comes with it or to make it more accessible. So the How to Own the World book, can you can tell us a bit more about that, who yeah. it was written for and, and what your objective was with the book and any future plans, if there are any? Yeah, sure. So, well, um... So first, it's called How to Own the World, right? And, the, the, and, and I've had a fair amount of stick about that. You know, it's it's a like, bold title, but I like but it. Yeah, it, it, who do you think you are? Like, you know, I mean, it, but, but then that, sadly, that misunderstands what that means. And all that, so it basically has, it, it has two things in it. First, it, ha, it, it has an articulation of all the stuff I've just talked about, like the chat, why we don't know anything about finance, why it's super important to know about finance, why it's life-changing for you as an individual and society changing for society as a whole if, if we get better at this stuff and then what are the basic you know what are the what, what are the investment accounts what are the assets out there i mean there's basically shares otherwise known as equities or stocks you know bonds commodities so like gold oil wheat cotton coffee silver whatever weapons of financial mass destruction i.e derivatives you know well, basically it just trots people through the, the nuts and bolts of what all this stuff is and what it means in you know my business is called plain english finance right and the whole plan was trying to do it in the most plain English way and make it accessible to people and then and then the second bit of it if you like is okay so we've learned all those basics is then a worldview what I hope is quite an objective worldview okay you learn all this stuff using all the evidence the last couple hundred years and getting right back to basics and fundamental principles what can I do as somebody sitting in Britain because it is very UK I mean for problematic for me commercially that i can't access the u.s market yet right but i mean but people in the uk love it because it is uk centric and talks about ices and sips and you know stuff that's relevant to uk people what can i do sitting in the uk having learned all this stuff that's kind of safe relatively safe to engage with this okay so that i can you show me how you you know five grand can become a million quid over a lifetime investment you know wow like okay well what do i actually do the sort of worldview that I then articulate is basically how the richest and smartest people in the world have invested for the last two centuries. And I'd include amongst the, that group Oxford and Cambridge universities, who are very wealthy, as everybody knows. They have these big endowments from all the rich people that used to go there and you know, give the colleges millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of pounds. Harvard and Yale in, in the States, the same thing. Basically, Ivy League US colleges who have multi-billion dollar endowment funds. People like the Rothschild family, you know, you know, they're sort of great and good in the very wealthiest people in history. There's a commonality to how they all invest, which they have been able to do for 200 years, right? Because they are who they are. The man in the street has not been able to do until about 10, 20 years ago, let's say, because of innovation and financial service. And what that basic thing is, which, sorry, which long-winded, but which is why it's called How to Own the World, is own all major asset classes in all major geographical regions. Because if you if you own American shares, European shares, including UK shares and Asian shares, and if you own commodities and if you own bonds, although that's a bit of a special case at the moment, but 
what most people do is they find out at the stock market and they end up just owning shares from their own country. That is falling far short of owning all assets in all geographical regions, right? And only in the last few years, thanks to online trading accounts and a, a, a one particular innovation called an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, which is a very cheap way of... If you want to buy 500 companies in the US today, 500 companies, you can, invest, you can do that with as little as 25 quid a month, right? You couldn't do that until relatively recently. So my insight would be like was to sort of say, okay, all these super smart people have invested like this. Because what does that do? Because in 2007, 8, 9, stock markets all over the world halved. Right. But but oil hit an all time high in 2008 and gold was up 19 and a half percent in 2009. And so the insight is basically like you have this. If you own all assets in all major regions of the world, you protect your downside because there's always Warren Buffett, the very the fa most famous investor in the world, arguably says there's always a bull market somewhere right there. And so now you think that if you do that, it kind of you're, you know, it's a, what, what some people might refer to as a porridge portfolio, like, you know, blur, you know, it's like super bland and you, but actually the record of history is if, if you do that in a pretty fundamental and basic way, which you can as a normal person in Britain now, and that, that's a really important point. You couldn't do that. It probably, you couldn't do it as effectively as you can do it today, even five years ago or 10 years. Well, I mean, I, I could say, you couldn't do it until we launched our fund three and a half years ago, but that, that, that's not true after. It's just one, one approach. Um, and there are plenty of other ways to do it, which are more or less risky. Um, but, but that's the, that's the, you know, what is the book about and why has it been successful? Because it basically, it walks people from a standing start of like, what on earth is all this finance stuff through a basic sort of crash course, you know, mini MBA for like, in what, what is a share? What is a, but what's inflation? What are interest rates? How does the government bond market work? How are interest rates set? blah 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 and in the third edition i did do about eight thousand words on uh, bitcoin and crypto and everything as well just because it now exists and then it says okay so now we've learned all that what do we actually do um and and we do something which and look there are tons of other things you can do um but this is just a sleep at night kind of cockroach portfolio approach to okay if i do this year in year out for most of my adult life from the minute i start earning money with a little bit of my what i make each month I should actually become quite wealthy. Again, it's it's get rich slow, not get rich quick. Right? Andrew, do you think one of the dangers is that people associate finance and money with maths and numeracy? And actually, if I'm not very good at maths or numbers, I can't get involved. It's too scary for me. I can't do that kind of stuff. And if, if so, are they correct? My personal opinion is, just having you know, talked around finance and had a little background in finance, that it's much more language than it is numbers. And therefore, it's, it's more accessible than people think it can be. And books like yours really help because it, it, it unpicks the language, you know, and the maths isn't as important. Would that be fair to say or do you have a different take? hundred percent. I mean, like maths, the only maths you do need to know is how to calculate a percentage change which I always remember is number going to divided by number coming from minus one times 100, right? With brackets in the right place. But I mean, that is it. Like you just need to, because understanding percentage change is why you understand how five grand becomes a million quid, right? And, and, and how percentage change plays out, the difference between a, a geometric progression and an arithmetic progression. So an arithmetic progression is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. A geometric is one, two, four, eight, 16, 30, right? So it's obviously that's 100% return. One becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight is 100% a year or decade or whatever. And, and, the, and the way that one of them is a curve that gets steeper and steeper and steeper. And one of them is a line that just goes like 45 degrees and a chart, right? That's it. 
Like once, <laughs> once you understand that, you're done. And and you, and you know, yeah. I mean, clearly, if you if you're going to work, you work out. If I tell you, you should absolutely make sure you save and invest ten percent of what you earn every month. You're going to need to be able to divide what you earn every month by ten. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, most people can do that. Um, yeah. The 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 I guess finance as a career though. Like if you and again, I, I go back to the fastest route from A to B. What is when I talk about becoming good at finance as being no harder than learning how to drive a car. That's just to get a very sort of formulaic you know, evidence-based, a set of accounts set up, automatic direct debits going out every month into the right sort of stuff, boom, boom. That is, a, that is the fastest route from A to B that we're trying to tell people about. Of course, becoming a credit derivative salesperson or working for a major investment bank and t- working out whether or not Shell is a buy today. And this is why we, we talk an awful lot. I, mean, I mentioned earlier the whole um, ignoring the news thing, which that's super important. So obviously, if you're a, a high-profile equity analyst um, trying to work out whether you buy Shell today or sell EasyJet or, you know, you can't, you know, you have to take account from you. So what I'm talking about is not that. And the other thing I talk about is investing, not trading. Like, it's really important. What we talk about is investing, not trading, right? And again, I think investing is something that absolutely everyone should do. And trading is something that perhaps 0.1% of the population should do. And this is another crypto, you know, come back to the crypto thing. It, it makes me want to tear my hair out that your average, you know, 16-year-old watching TikTok or 22-year-old coming out of uni who's maybe got a little bit of an inheritance from, or some money their parents have given them or however, they, you know, they made a few grand in their first job or whatever. Going from naught to trading crypto is like having a white belt in karate and going to your first karate lesson and fighting black belts. It's just mental. Like, no. Do yeah. you, you know, whatever, I can't remember the order, it's brown, what is it, yellow, green, I can't remember, but, you know, do go through the belts, and, and, and the first belts are investing, you know, the black belt or the brown belt is trading, and like buying stuff this morning and selling it this afternoon, and, you know, and frankly, trading only works, really, really works, if you're bloody good, and I'd say you need to probably have about a degree's worth of knowledge to become a good, like literally, you yeah. can't become a trader in 10 minutes, anybody tells you you can, is mistaken. They might be good at trade. They they can they can do it in ten minutes because they've been doing it for twenty years, right? But yeah, you can't exactly. Um, and and um, you know it's a very very time consuming thing to do well. It requires an awful lot of knowledge to do well. And actually, to do it in a relatively riskless way, you need a lot of capital. I would say you need many tens of thousands of pounds, if not low six figures, before because otherwise your time is probably better off spent on other stuff. Yeah. But rather, you know, if you've got two grand, don't spend 10 hours a week sitting on crypto groups wondering whether or not to buy Bitcoin this morning or sell Ether or buy car. You know, don't do that. Get better at your job. Like if you're a musician, if you're a DJ, become a better DJ. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're an accountant or a surveyor or an estate agent or, you know, whatever you do, that 10 hours is better spent doing that if you're in your 20s than if you've got two grand messing about trying to turn it into three grand you know so anyway you can see i i, I forgot what your question was there i've gone off on a ramp again but, you answered um, them perfectly so um I, I, another question i really because this relates to what you were talking about and obviously our focus is very much looking at, at young people so yeah. i'd be curious to know if you could speak to yourself as maybe a 17 or 18 year old young lad now you know and, and 
what might you say to yourself with your knowledge and experience and knowing what the world's like now with regards to the opportunities, technology for all its good and, and bad opportunities that it presents? Then what, what might you say to yourself as, a, as an 18 year old young lad? Everything I'm saying now. Right. Um, and one of the really good. So for, for, uh, the first bit of this, I actually did pretty well, which is save and invest every month, no matter what. Right. And as soon as I started making some money in my job, uh, you know, and when I was a barman in my gap year, not in my gap year. Sorry. You know, but look, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't just, yes, I got a highly paid job in an investment bank in the city of London after I did an economics degree. Right. But long before that, when I was doing paper rounds in my teens and do, and about like, I saved some of my money and not, you know, not very much in absolute terms. And that's a super important thing. The mistake I made, which I wish I could go back and tell myself is I swung for the fences a bit too much. So I, I'm the proud owner of a bunch of land in Montenegro, for example, <laughs> which was, you know, which is a lot of money. And, and, you know, I might still make 10, there might be still a million dollars down there for me to collect if I can sell it to some Russian uh, hotel developer. But, you know, that was 2005. I, made i'd done all right and a couple of bonuses and me and a few mates you know montenegro there's a tile you know it's like the next croatia my maids made loads of money but but ultimately what that did is it tied up a really quite a big chunk of capital which i've made no return on um for the last 10 or no what's that 2005 16 years um and had i put that money in the market i that money would be worth way way i mean i'm gonna have to sell it today for 15 times what i you know bought it for having made zero 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 and 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 so low risk pedestrian plodding own the market invest every month if you do that from the time you start working for the whole of your life i mean if you if you're a relatively well-paid professional and i don't mean like a super duper master of the universe hedge fund manager i just mean a, a pretty you know you can be on the average or a little bit above average but if you start um saving investing well in the way I'm talking about when you're in your early 20s or mid 20s or late 20s, you know, 15 to 20 years later, you'll be pretty amazed at how much money you've got in your investment accounts. And yeah. so, I, yeah, I would I would um, I would remind me uh, not to buy property in Montenegro and a couple <laughs> of others. What else did I, I did a couple of other things like that on the way. Um, but, you know, you well, live and learn. I mean, it's probably a, it was probably a very good learning experience. Of course, and not everything's going to go right, and resilience is part of the whole process, right? In life, particularly, you know, with with investment. What about things like researching and doing your due diligence and actually putting some time aside to do that? You mentioned, you know, it's important to focus on what's going to pay the bills and what's going to get you where you want to go in life as a career, yeah. but actually don't be scared to look at this as an you know as almost like a hobby if you like, but one you've got to put your time and effort into understanding. Would that be fair? Is that something you'd recommend? Yeah. But again, it comes back to my difference between investing and trading. I think I think yep. and we're always at pains to um, to go on about you know to remind people about this again and again. Is is um, there is a big a lot of people read my book and then they get in touch. And they're very excited. And they're, but you know and they're and they're still thinking like traders. They're like, should I buy this tech stock? What should I do about Apple? Or should I should I short GameStop? Should I like and that, that's just not. We're the time required to build the nuts and bolts infrastructure of an automated monthly direct debit into something sensible yeah. isn't much. It's like a couple of rainy Sunday afternoon, you know, dare, dare I say, read my book, then, <laughs> then uh, so read this one, because this is the more, uh, this is the one that's really like, okay, uh, nuts and bolts, really, how do I, which accounts and yeah. which stockbroking companies might I use and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and there are lots of there are lots of other great books, um, like I talked about the psychology of money earlier. But 
that the admin required and the work required to do that. I mean, obviously, the more you do over time, the better, right? But it's important to just set up a basic infrastructure. And I often, one of the other things I say a lot is it's it's ninety percent admin and ten percent fund selection. Yeah. Like the the long term, you can almost invest in anything <laughs> if you start young enough. It's regular because you're averaging in, right? So even if it goes up and down and it's follow, like if you if you're doing it from your mid twenties until your early forties or mid forties or whatever. It almost doesn't matter as long as you invest in something sensible. Although one of the big ideas in this book, by the way, which um, wasn't in the first one and is really important, is something I call a hundred minus your age. Well, that's what I call it's not it's not it's not a it's not my idea, which is basically that um, if if you're if you're thirty, you could probably have seventy percent of what you're saving each month or your net worth in relatively aggressive investments so that would be like the basically the stock market investments things that go up and down but broadly over time probably go up a lot because you've got years and years before you retire to recover losses and it and, and maybe 30 percent in defensive but if you're 70 years old you should have um 70 in defensive and 30 percent in aggressive and uh, because obviously put it this way if you're 30 and you've got 10 grand let's say you're 30 and you've saved in your 20s and you've managed to save 10 grand and there's a massive stock market crash and you're 100% in the stock market now you've got five grand that's or a bitcoin crash that's bloody annoying but it's only five grand um and in a, in a lifetime you know and you've also got 30 years plus left before you need to retire and live on your capital but if you're 60 and you've got a million quid and then you you in the stock market, and, and this has happened to a lot of people in 99, 2000, you know, to lots of people who were very poorly advised and, you know, didn't spend enough time really learning this crucial stuff. If you're 60 and you've got a million quid and the stock market falls 50%, now you've got half a million quid. Yeah. And you don't have 30 years Once to sort that out again, and you've lost half a million quid. So that's why the return of your money becomes more important than the return on your money the older you get. And that's why I recommend using the side of 100 minus your age. Because again, it's just a really elegant prism through which to look at the problem of, okay, what do I actually do? Well, how old are you? You know, question one, how old are you? All right, well, then you might do this because it's going to be different if you're 30 or if you're 60 or 70 or whatever. So, and, and, that, and that, that admin, the, the work requires us to understand basic stuff like that and then use it to um, put a plan in place is, is not much, but the work done to require, the work required to be done to become a really good trader and, you know, on a Tuesday, decide you're going to invest in a property company. And on a Wednesday, decide you're going to invest in a software company. That is, that is a huge amount of work. And I, go, and I go back to the fact that, you know, 99% of people don't need to be doing that work, in my view. I mean, you can do a very, very good job with your finances and end up very wealthy without ever worrying about buying a single share. And, to, and again, it's the black belt, fighting the black belt. I mean, I talk about that in crypto, but it's the same in trading. Like, don't bypass all this basic stuff and go straight to like, oh, I'm going to start buying tech stocks on, you know, and trading them on eToro. Like, it's the, you know, what I say earlier, 92% of British people don't even, don't do this stuff. The tragedy is that of the 8% that do, you know, what percentage of them have gone straight past the simple stuff into the, the black belt stuff? Far too many. I wonder how much of that is down to the fact that the average person isn't around this world enough. So all they see is even nothing or like, you know, the, the bright lights with the big investments, you know, and, and don't see the bit in between. And actually it's the bit in between that can really make the real difference. And you only you either hear the really good news stories from, you know, these wonderful investments that people have got lucky and made or, or the really bad choices they've made, but you don't get the nuts and bolts. Well, yeah, actually you, like re- you, 
Yeah, that's right. The, the, the mainstream press will always talk about a stock market crash. So let's say the stock market crashes on 0.1% of days. Yeah. On a one thousandth of trading days will be a massive, well, it might even be less than that. I'm trying to think mathematically. Let's say it's every 10 years, it's 250 trading days a year. So one day in 2,500 days, roughly, will be a massive Black Monday crash or whatever, right? But that's all you'll, that's the only day the press will ever talk about the stock market. So, exactly. so for the 2004, that's the, I mean, that's just a problem with our press. It's the same, you know, it's just the way the press works because it's, if it bleeds, it leads and it sells copy. And on the good side, there's the only thing when you're winning brigade, which again is illegal if you're regulated. If you're regulated, you can't only talk about your successes. You know, if you've put, if you've had a minus six percent year, it, you have to declare you've had a minus six percent year. If you're in crypto, you can go. Oh, you know, you just talk about the, all your winners. That's all you ever do. And we all know, you know, behind that, under the the tip of the iceberg is all the winners. The the eighty percent under the water is all the losers. And you know, there's an awful lot of that going around in that world. But yeah, so I think people get a very distorted view because the mainstream press only talks about massive crashes and you know tragedy and disaster and whatever and the, and then the kind of online people throwing money at facebook ads to get your attention online are telling you i can make you rich in 10 minutes as i said earlier i wrote a piece a few months ago called when is seven and a half percent better than 75 percent right uh, it's on the opinion section and it was basically about the importance of volatility adjusted returns and the the as i said earlier human nature is such that if somebody says to you i can make you 100 percent a year and you sort of feel in the back of your mind that they're lying and they can't. Far too many people will give them their money than if I tell you, I, I reckon I can make you five, six, seven, eight percent a yeah. year. That's Fear just, of missing out. It's just human nature. Yeah. And, you know, and it's tragic because people, well, people almost do it knowing, yeah. you know, it's like we know if, if those of us who perhaps drink too many beers at the weekend, we know that if we go to the pub on a Friday and we're really tired at the end of the day and we're going for, yeah, there's a brilliant, have you ever read the Daily Mash? There's brilliant articles there. It's hilarious. Sign up to the Daily Mash. Um, there's a good recommendation for it. It's very, very funny every <laughs> day. And, it, and there's one of, it, one of its articles recently was, man going to pub, honest for first time ever, it says, do you want to go for six pints? You know, like, instead of do you want to go for <laughs> yeah. a pint? But anyway, well, my point is, human, we know we're doing stuff that's bad for us and it's not going to work, but we're just, we're weak and feeble and like, you know, it. And I guess I would like to think that having engaged with X hundred pages of my books, it will increase the probability that you won't get swept down that, you know, yep. Alice rabbit hole or whatever, um, yep. or sinkhole. Um, I mean, look, I, even I still now, I mean, I'm um, having spent years in the, bio, I, I believe that a number of the biotech companies that I know inside out and back to front are almost certainly worth 10 times what they're currently trading at, right? And I, but I have to be very careful about how I allocate my capital to that belief because I could be wrong <laughs> and I could be yeah. being naive and I could be too close to it. So even though I've spent the best part of seven years learning about that sector and being a professional in that sector, I've still got to be self-aware enough not to just put all my money in it and get swept into it. And so for somebody who's got no basis in finance at all, it's perhaps unsurprising. And the other thing, one other thing I would say is, if you, I think if you go on Wikipedia and type in, if you Google cognitive biases, which are basically in what psychologists um, have done loads of work on over many, many years of sort of malfunctions in how our brain works. I think, I think that Wikipedia entry has like 110 of them. And the, the Chartered Institute of Securities Investment, one of your peers that examine people who are going to become stockbrokers, 
have 46 of them in their examination materials. So I don't know, if we've got time, I'll give, a, I'll, give a, there are a lot, I'll give a really quick example, which is just to show how humans' brains are fundamentally don't work, right? And, this, and then that, that makes us bad investors. And we have, to, we have to know about these and fight them in order to be a better investor. So for example, it's sometimes called the surgery example. If a surgeon, if you've got a, if you need to have a really dangerous surgery that could kill you, right? If the surgeon says to you, you've got a 90% chance of surviving this surgery, or you've got a 10% chance of being killed by this surgery. So you're saying the patient's sitting in front of the surgeon and a surgeon can either say, look, there's a 10% chance you're going to die if we do this surgery, or they can say there's a 90% chance to survive. They're statistically exactly the same, right? But what would you do? If I say, if, I, if you're sitting there thinking about whether- or the 90%, not, please. <laughs> yeah, right? And, and so it's, it, it's, it's, it's just, that's just an example of how our brains are hardwired to get stuff wrong. We do that with finance. The, yeah, the evidence is if you if you ask ten thousand people that question, like some huge percentage of them will will if you give them the ten percent, they'll they won't have the surgery, and if you give them the ninety percent, they will have the surgery, even though it's statistically the same outcome, right? And that so that's just a little vignette. To ex- so we there are forty six of those or hundred plus of those where people think something and feel it very so loss aversion. If they you know, to my point about the press only talking about the stock market when there's a massive crash. So that means that people in their brain, when they think about stock market investment, all they think about is it's risky immediately. Like the first thing that comes up in their head is, oh, stock markets, they're risky. Actually, stock markets in many ways are less risky than cash because cash is guaranteeing the destruction of your wealth. If, you're, if you have £100,000 and it's sitting in cash, you're getting poorer every single day. If it's sitting in the stock market and you actually know what you're doing, you're getting richer. And, you know, nobody gets taught this stuff, I mean, which is why I you know, wrote a book about it. <laughs> Andrew, that's been awesome. Thank you so much. You, you've gone like above and beyond all the questions that I've asked. You've really shown your passion for the subject and not just your knowledge and what you're talking about, because obviously you've got that in abundance, but your passion for actually helping other people kind of understand this world a bit more. Um, we come at, you know, I said before, we come at this from different angles, you know, and certainly different levels, but I think ultimately- but, but very aligned. Very, very, yeah, aligned. very aligned. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and, it, and it's great to talk to people like you to make a real difference out there. And it's been wonderful having you on um, for this episode. Curious to know what your plans are moving forward. What you know, obviously you've, now you've, you've made the leap into this, you've got the fund, you've got the website, the books, you know, what's your plans over the next few years? Yeah. So a lot. Um, I mean, it's super exciting. I've got a lot of work to do. Um, but I mean, so first thing we're, I'm hoping to publish two books, one is a teenager, sort of young adult. So again, hopefully we can talk about this a lot going forward, given what you guys do. Um, uh, but we, around about early next year, um, I need to deliver the manuscript by December. Um, and then it usually takes about two or three months after you deliver the manuscript to do the edit and then get it published. So we're doing a version of How to Own the World for Teenagers. So it's Owning awesome. the World for Teens or whatever the working title. And then I'm also doing a book on biotech, uh, which the working title of that is called The Future is Biotech because I just think it's incredibly badly understood. And, it, you know, if you like, my, my business is plain English finance. I've tried to plain English finance overall in my first two books. And in this book, I want to plain English biotech um, because I think the, the Googles and, uh, you know, Amazons and, and Facebooks and Netflix and, you know, the big, the big trillion dollar companies of the next 20 years are very likely to be biotech companies because they're going to, they really are going to change the world. And biotech is good. not just in terms of curing cancer or dementia or, you know, elderly care or all these challenges we face, but, you know, or, or tissue engineering. So if you could have a new hand like Luke Skywalker, I mean, literally that stuff is not 
far in the future from now. It's really amazing that, you know, the science fact looks a lot like science fiction right now. And, you know, it's part of why coronavirus vaccine took 10 months instead of 10 years. It's all yeah. part of the same thing. But, you know, the, 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 I think those technologies could also really sort out agricultural production and energy production. Things like enzymes applied to algae could give us uh, aviation fuel and automotive fuel. And there are just so many incredible sort of things that biotech might deliver for humanity in the way that tech has done the last 20 years. So I'm writing that. I may then look to, we've got an investment fund right now, um, which is a global multi-asset fund. If I can, I would like to launch a biotech investment fund. Um, and there are quite a few noises about, I, I, you know, if I was a betting man, I think I've got a reasonably good chance of getting one out, out and up in lights, which would be far riskier and, you know, a very different animal. But ultimately, yeah. our, our fund is really defensive, the one we have right now. And the people are always coming to me, especially wealthier, older people and saying, look, your fund's super boring and defensive and it's tortoise and, and I'm always like, well, yeah, don't forget the tortoise wins the race, right? But, um, but yeah. they want a hair, you know, they want bias, they want sex and violence and biotech and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, so that would be lovely if we can manage that. Um, and then, yeah, just uh, relaunching my YouTube channel um, to just put, you know, I write long stuff and uh, people want perhaps bite size, like three to five minutes of actionable stuff. So that, and then, yeah, just all of that, all of that stuff. So all of which you can find at plainenglishfinance.com. Um, and I'm on Twitter, you know, just search for English finance, all that good stuff. Um, and well, if I may just mention, you know, the easiest way to kind of hear about all this stuff is on our website, on the landing page, on the homepage. You just go down to the bottom of the homepage and there's a box. You just put your name and your email. And that's it. Um, and I only email every two to four weeks. It's not like a daily spam of annoying nonsense. It's just like when I have something really important to say, I write something. Um, and you can you can delete it then if you like, but hopefully, you know. um, and yeah. we'll um, we'll make sure we put the website link and um, your contact details in the show notes anyway, so people can find those for you. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time today. Best up with everything you're doing. If you, when the book comes out, the future is biotech. Make sure that you check the title first. No one else has put it out already. I'm, you're probably on safer ground with that one than the other one. <laughs> well, now now remember, I, well, that was when I self published. Now oh, I've of got course, a very course. Yeah. a very big publisher who who know about how, how you're stuff gonna, like that. You, you're going yeah. to be fine then. Yeah. No, yeah. Look, thank you so much, Andrew. Like it's been a real pleasure talking to you. You know, I could talk for hours. If you're happy to come back on at some point in the future, to discuss maybe another topic or fine tuning some of this stuff. Would that be okay? hundred percent. Oh yeah. Look, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'll do, do this stuff till the cows come home. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, I, it's been fantastic for me. I've really enjoyed it. I know listeners will too. Best up with everything you're doing moving forward. And I certainly look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully in the not too distant future. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. It's great speaking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please remember to leave a review and share. To find out more about the work we do at LIBF and our French education qualifications, please contact us or visit our website. All details can be found in this episode's show notes.